Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The reality is the storm isn't even over yet. It's still hitting Cape Breton very hard right now. And the, uh, the, the tail end of the hurricane is, uh, or, or post-tropical storm, Fiona, is hitting them. So it, it, will take, uh, it will take a few days to get damage assessments, that's for sure. Nova Scotia Emergency Management Minister John Lohr, and that obviously was from yesterday when Fiona was hitting uh, Cape Breton and hit Cape Breton very, very hard, and particularly... Cape Breton Regional Municipality has declared a state of emergency over the impact of Fiona. And from what we understand, the mayor has said, this is a state of emergency that will stay in place for some seven days. Gordon MacDonald is District 1 Council Member of the Cape Breton Regional Municipality. Gordon is in, uh, in Sydney. Gordon, thank you very much uh, for taking the time to join us today. How badly is your community damaged Hi, Roy, and uh, thanks for asking us to come on and talk about that. Um, well, um, it's, 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 we're pretty battered down here on Cape Breton Island um, here in the CBRM. Where, um, we have approximately 70 roads that were blocked as of this morning. Um, power lines, uh, rows of power poles are down. Um, there's major uh, electrical infrastructure that has been down. Um, it's just fortunate that I'm able to be able to connect with you as, as right after we spoke earlier today. Uh, we lost all of our, our services again. Um, so we got a pretty unstable network. Um, yeah, so things have been very tried and tested over the last day and a half. And, uh, you know, fortunately, some of the work crews are out uh, working on trying to get some of the systems up and running now. Uh, shared with us, please, Gordon, what it was like. Um, and you're not unfamiliar in uh, in Cape, on, uh, Cape Breton on the uh, the the storms that come in and come in very hard and very fast. Uh, what was this one like? This one was very eerie, Roy. Uh, it had a very odd feel to it. It, it came in. Uh, the air was very still as it entered in. Uh, you feel it for hours. And then when it, it kind of picked up slow, and then before you know it, by the time the winds and the rain started picking up, uh, there was trees being uprooted. Uh, there was things blowing around. Uh, it, it 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 was it was blinding. Um, I I have a fairly fair sized yard here in the area, which I was out checking things out during some of the the storm, and uh, it it was raging. It's probably one of the Worst storms I've experienced in my lifetime, and you know the, the water, the ocean um, was it was the waves were coming across the some of the shorelines, some of the roads. Uh, it, it it was the, the impact and the power of that storm was uh, somewhat impressive, to say the least. You know, uh, when we spoke earlier with the uh, the uh, town manager. At uh, Port of Basque in Newfoundland, 
she was telling us that in a matter of seconds, a matter of seconds, houses were ripped off their foundations. A two-story apartment building was ripped off its foundations. Houses found themselves uh, hurled into the ocean, and it was a 40 to 50-foot wave that just crested in and just took everything down. And, and when, when you think of that kind of raw power coming off the sea, it's just, it's terrifying. You must have felt some of that as, as well in your community. Like, what, what next? Well, what, that's <laughs> right, what next? Well, you know, when you're, when you're experiencing that high amount of wind and, and the amount of rain that was coming in with that, and, you know, you've got trees bending somewhat at a 45 or more degree angle, wow. some of them touching the ground, and then you see what the surf is doing and the power of the ocean and what, <laughs> you know, to add to that, the, what is going to happen to the houses along the shores? And, I mean, we're an island. we got lots of shores and we got lots of roads and and the roads that run along our shorelines. So uh, uh, I understand down in their, in their western community on the west side of the island, uh, a lot of those shorelines have been, roadways have been uh, affected, and there's, uh, bridges are out down there. And, you know, it, it's, the ocean is a powerful beast, and, you know, uh, Fiona certainly curled up some of the, some of the toughest parts of that, that situation the other day. How much housing have you lost? How many people are without homes? So right now, I believe uh, what we understand, uh, there's approximately 120 people that are um, in shelters at the moment. Uh, there's a lot of people still living within their own places. Uh, the roofs are torn, torn off. They're trying to cover them up. Uh, I was down to see a, a, one of our veterans, a senior, this afternoon. Him and his wife um, were in a situation. There's and I, I don't know how their house is not crushed. There's six trees laying across the top of the house oh, right wow. now. Um, and I mean, massive trees. These are 60 foot monsters. Oh, um, and, and all that's holding them up is the, the roots that are still attached to the ground. Um, how they didn't get any damn, anything like if, if that had a crash through, they would never survive that. Um, and and those people don't want to leave their homes. He's he's a veteran. He served, and you know he's he's not a young guy. And uh, so yeah, so we're trying to get our hopefully our emergency services to be able to step up and to be able to you know help in these situations. Uh, I was speaking earlier to the mayor. Um, we have uh, our reserves and our military are, are ready to come in and help uh, in in some of these situations as well. So. You know, um, we got all of our resources putting to, going together, and, you know, we're just hoping for the best. And you have a seven-day state of emergency. It's going to take that at least to, to get everything everything opened up and to be able to make sure that residents are safe at least. Um, we have to allow the time for our emergency services and Nova Scotia Power to get in here to be able to uh, get the power back and you know, it's, I think it's in the best interest of our, of our uh, emergency service people and the residents to keep that in place for seven days. Yeah. And fortunately, we were able to have that meeting early during, uh, early in the morning uh, during Fiona's worst conditions because then we lost all communications uh, for the rest of the day after that. So I, at least we had our emergency measures uh, situation in, in control. Yeah. Gordon, do you have anything uh, that you want to share with uh, listeners who are from uh, Nova Scotia, from Cape Breton, from the Sydney area and listening in 
in different parts of this country uh, listening to us. They live in other parts of the country now, but their hearts are still uh, back home in Atlantic Canada. Well, you know, any of, anybody that comes from Nova Scotia and, and to refer to themselves as a blue announcer, as our premier said today, we're, we're uh, resilient people. Um, we look after our neighbors. Uh, or one of our neighbors that are in trouble, we're in trouble. Um, that's one of the things that we we're proud of doing, and especially here on Cape Breton Island, and, and you know certainly in my district. So, you know, I see people today out uh, with chainsaws uh, opening up streets. I see the people helping people, uh, helping get trees off of their cars, uh, helping people get branches out of their off their homes. Um, you know, bringing ladders, bringing generators. I had a family of four just tell, call me and tell me, "Oh, Gordon, my neighbor uh, was." Gave me a brand new generator. Uh, anybody you know that needs some help, uh, send them down. And you know, so that's what we got going on. And you know, we got lots of volunteers uh, running our comfort centers. So you know, if you're a blue noser out there from anywhere in the country, whether it's in D.C. or Labrador, um, you know, we're resilient, and we're definitely going to be looking after each other. That's one small step for man. One. So why were we playing Neil Armstrong on the moon? Well, because, uh, I think it's Tuesday, NASA is going to intentionally crash an almost $500 million Canadian spacecraft into an asteroid. And the idea behind it, as we understand, it's called the DART program, or it is part of the DART program. The idea behind it is to see if uh, by crashing this spacecraft, spaceship, space thing, spacecraft. <laughs> I'm such a technically uh, knowledgeable astronomer. Um, by crashing the spacecraft into the asteroid, or moonlet, as it's called. I'm not sure what the difference between a, an asteroid and a moonlet is. But it's they're going to try to change the trajectory on it. Now, is that because this thing is heading toward Earth and um, threatening us with Armageddon? Apparently not. So don't get worried. NASA says no. It is not a problem. It is not a Bruce Willis movie come to life. It's just they want to see if they can get it done. That's my understanding. See if they can crash. That's a lot of money, though, eh? Spending half a billion dollars to crash a spacecraft into an asteroid or a moonlet just to see if you can change its trajectory. I would have thought that you could do some computer calculations and come up with that information that way, but... What do I know? My guest knows a great deal about all of this. Chris Rutkowski, science writer, who's written extensively on space, on UFOs and related subjects. He has degrees in science and education and uh, is at the University of Manitoba on the faculty. So, uh, Chris, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. What's your view of this mission and, and why are they doing it now? Well, it's, uh, it's quite a good question. Why would we try this? It's uh, like you said, it's right out of Hollywood, right out of Deep Impact, or one of those. Um, and you know, you were right that you know, why don't they just use a computer simulation? You know, why spend half a billion dollars on this? And the reason is, you know, sometimes you got to try it in real life. I mean, you can we can design a a Jaguar uh, car, but you know, to find out exactly how it handles on curves, you might actually have to build one. So uh, on paper is fine, but uh, real life really has to to give us some real information. Yeah, I, I should tell people as well. Your most recent book is Canada's UFOs Declassified, 
And uh, that is available in 2019. You wrote, When They Appeared. And uh, there's such a fascination with space and with the potential of, you know, the unknown out there. Mm -hmm. And there are people, and this is not a leap, Chris, you could deduce this faster than me, but there are people who are saying to themselves, so why, we go back to the original question, why are they doing it uh, now? Is there something serious going on? Are they just not telling us that this thing is a danger to Earth? Um, (laughs) To people who have that, uh, that conspiracy fear, what do you say to them? Well, you know, I don't want to downplay it, actually, because um, the uh, the division of NASA that's doing this is actually called planetary defense. And that's not, you know, against aliens necessarily, but it's against uh, the, the idea that, uh, you know, there are asteroids and large pieces of debris out there that pass very close to Earth. And when I say very close, you know, I think this particular one uh, did I most... Uh, came within something like 4 million miles of Earth, which sounds a long way, but it's a little too uncomfortable uh, getting a little too close. It's actually getting a little closer in about 100 years. Um, and the idea is that in, in case there is something that, that appears, like there, there, this one was only discovered in 1996, so there probably are others out there uh, a little bit smaller, but big enough, that cross the orbit of Earth, which just like this one, it gets uh, very close to Earth, uh, that, you know, maybe, you know, if something might happen, it might get close, too close to Earth, and, uh, you know, there's a potential for impact. So the idea, is it possible to actually deflect asteroids that are heading for Earth? And so they had this opportunity, they had this brilliant idea when you think about it. There's actually two satellites and two asteroids, like you say, there's one, uh, Didymos, and the, its little movement, Dimorphos. And... Uh, uh, Dimorphos itself is pretty small as asteroids go, but it's big enough. Well, you know, just imagine something the size of, oh, BC Place. Small for asteroids, I suppose. Um, and they're shooting a, uh, this little dark spacecraft, um, maybe the size of a refrigerator-ish, at it. Uh, it's going tremendously fast, you know, 13, 14, 15,000 miles an hour. Uh, and the idea is that uh, they're going to, you know, this thing's going to impact on this uh, little moonlet and see if you can make it wobble, see if you can just, you know, change its orbit just a little bit because this, it's actually orbiting this other asteroid, the bigger one, the, the, the Deimos, just to see proof of concept. Is it actually possible to do something that, you know, can protect, and not just uh, Earth, I mean, it's possible that, uh, you know, there would be... Uh, uh, the space station, or what will pass for the space station in, in 10 years or so, uh, if it's coming too close, is it possible to sort of nudge something out of the way? So, you know, it's it's, a, it's an interesting idea, and it may have a practical uh, application 100 years from now, but the idea, can we, can we actually do it? Yeah, I, I find it uh, strangely interesting and somewhat disconcerting that uh, NASA has an an arm called planetary defense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> From what? Are we talking about asteroids or are we talking about those things that pop in and out of the ocean that U.S. Navy fighter jets have video on that we've seen? What are well, we defending well, ourselves has, against? I was going to say NASA has, has said it's going to take a look at UFOs in the next little while, or, or they're calling them UAPs now. Uh, in Canada, we still call them UFOs, let the Americans call them UAPs. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the Planetary Defense Office at NASA 
is designed for you know asteroids and, and comets and things like that. But you know, the NASA itself has a lot of branches and because of public pressure and people are really fascinated with the whole con- concept of UFOs. Uh, that they are, they said they're going to use uh, some of their technology and you know, their data crunching analysis to try and look at UFO data in the next little while. So, you know, there is a, another side to this, I suppose. So it's not unusual for extraterrestrial objects to strike the planet, is it? Small, small ones, and there have been some pretty big ones as well. Um, if if this thing, and again, looking, you're saying it's the size roughly of a BC place. If it were to have come into our neighborhood and impacted the Earth, how much damage would something that size do? Well, this isn't one of those things that would wipe out the dinosaurs, but um, you know, even something the size of BC Place would make a pretty big dent. Uh, it would be pretty catastrophic. Uh, we're talking, you know, a lot of damage, uh, earthquakes, large craters, uh, fires, that sort of thing, uh, and that's for a relatively small asteroid. So you could just imagine if something of the magnitude is depicted in this Deep Impact movie was to come towards us, that would be a lot more concern. And, and I have to say that this dimorphos, this, this, even if they manage to wobble, it just, anyway, just imagine we're, sh- we're shooting a, you know, something the size of a, of a refrigerator um, at something the size of a BC place. So it's not going to make it move out of the way a lot. Even that little wobble is going to be detected. And there's, I mentioned there's a second satellite. There's actually a small satellite the size of a loaf of bread, if you can believe that's uh, taking photos. Uh, in fact, it's probably it's probably taking photos as we speak right now, um, just to prepare for it. And uh, you know, it's going to detect uh, any kind of wobble that might result from this. So there's no. I think people are thinking maybe this thing's going to be bumped out of orbit around uh, the larger asteroid and head for it. But it, it's not going to happen. Uh, the momentum shift won't be that significant. But the idea is, you know, we measure how much of a bump this one does. How much do we actually have to use if we do have to do this someday? That's the idea. Yeah, because we don't know everything that's out there. They're, they keep track of, what, thousands and thousands of them on a constant basis. But we don't really know everything that's out there. You said this, this uh, what's the name of this one? Uh, Demarphos? Yeah. Demarphos? Sorry, Didymos? Didymos. Yeah. yeah, so um, we didn't know about that one until 2019, you said. Uh, Didymos in... in uh, um, in 1996, Demorphos wasn't found until 20, 2003, I think something. Okay, okay. So we we don't, but we don't know all of them that are out there. They can suddenly pop up and uh, and become an issue. Yes. Yeah, they're, you know, we're there discovering uh, uh, near Earth uh, crossing asteroids, literally, you know, every year. So there's there's some out there that get pretty darn close to us. Hmm. All right, but this is not, uh, you don't see this, because <laughs> I'm getting emails, uh, Chris, I'm getting emails right now as we speak from listeners who are asking, is this real? Are they, in fact, trying to get this thing out of the way so it doesn't impact Earth? Should I be afraid? The answer to that one is no. Yeah? No. No. No, it's not, it's not in any danger of hitting Earth right now, and even after they, they bump it a little bit, it's... It's still going to be in orbit around the larger asteroid. Okay, let me take um, a quick The break. idea is we want to know. We just have to find out. How do we need to be concerned that something's going to pop up on the screen one day and suddenly be an uh-uh moment? Well, I wouldn't lose sleep over it. I mean, there's, there's certainly, uh, um, 
evidence on the earth that uh, things have slammed into us. Uh, uh, I mean, the uh, you, you, you know, people have been out to a Crater Lake uh, in the States, and uh, in Manitoba there's a lake called West Hawk Lake, which was created by a, uh, an incoming asteroid, uh, in a, no, sorry, an incoming asteroid, but it's something fairly decent-sized. Uh, a large chunk of northern Quebec was caused by that, and of course everybody's heard about the dinosaurs and their problems. Um, so it happens from time to time. Uh, there's fewer uh, than uh, there was at the time when the bombardment was occurring in the early stages of Earth's development. Uh, we see marks on the moon, of course, from lots of uh, impacts like that. Yes. And there are many asteroids out there, and some do cross the Earth's orbit. Um, but, uh, you know, scientists, uh, particularly NASA and other organizations, are keeping track of things that are flying around out there, and we have a good sense of uh, where they are and, and uh, their orbits. Now, occasionally, some are fairly small, and when I say small, again, you know, something the size of BC place or smaller. Uh, and from time to time, you do get these giant uh, fireballs uh, called bolides that light up the night sky, uh, the typical... Uh, shooting star is a, is a piece of comet that's barely the size of a, uh, of a grain of dust or the size of a fingernail in entering Earth's atmosphere, and it burns up so quickly it sort of flashes and then is gone. But sometimes they make it to the surface of the Earth and they're found as, as meteorites on the ground. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, things are about the size of, I don't know, perhaps a, a baseball and basketball or so. They hit the Earth from time to time. Something larger than that, very, very rare. And um, it's, it's the type of thing, you know, we, we shouldn't ignore, and that's why this planetary defense office at NASA exists. But at the same time, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's very, very unlikely. Okay, so I received an email from Lynn, and she writes, there's an asteroid named Apophis, A-P-O-P-H-I-S, on its way scheduled to hit on Friday, April 13th, 2025. Well, it's not scheduled to hit. It's scheduled to get pretty close. Apophis is one of the Earth-crossing asteroids, another one. There's, and there are several of them. Um, and uh, you know, when, I, when things get pretty close, I mean, there are asteroids that pass between the Earth and the Moon. That's uncomfortably close, but the Moon is still quite a significant ways away, and some of these asteroids are fairly small. So, uh, again, not, not anything to worry about, but... Uh, you know, the, again, the reason why such a department exists at NASA is just in case. Right. So what do we make now of what we've been seeing on television screens and the video that's been taken from the uh, from the fighters, the jet fighters off the U.S. aircraft carriers, of these tic-tac-shaped uh, objects that are f- just so much faster than, uh, than the jets plunge into the ocean, fly out of the ocean, cross in front of the jets, and you can hear the pilots kind of whooping it up as they as they see them and try to chase them. What do you make of that? Well, we have to be careful with that because um, the video that you see doesn't match what the pilots had actually seen, for one thing. And the other thing is that the videos are only parts of um, much larger videos, which the United States Navy and Department of Defense in the States uh, says uh, they're not going to release because they're classified for whatever reason. And these pieces of videos that we've seen you know, pretty well everywhere uh, were leaked by uh, former uh, counterintelligence people that are, you know, that are now working in the, the UFO community and uh, getting quite a lot of attention right now. 
Uh, and they've certainly started the ball rolling in terms of uh, the military and other government agencies taking a, an interest in, in UFOs or UAPs uh, as they are you know, more and more known. As a matter of fact, coming up this October, as a matter of fact, uh, around Halloween, uh, the uh, United States uh, is going to release its uh, report on UAP as kind of a Halloween treat. And uh, we're going to have to see what they release in terms of whether they're going to give us more information uh, sort of uh, tease us with a little bit more or give us uh, the whole deal. Okay. Uh, so it'll either be a trick or a treat, but uh, we'll, we'll find out more around Halloween. So when uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was released in the 80s, I aired an interview with J. Allen Hynek, the uh, Project Blue Book uh, U.S. Air Force uh, leader, and I asked him, how close to the truth is this? And you know what he said to me? Much closer than you might imagine, Mr. Green. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I think it was pulling you know, my leg. Canada, we get reports of UFOs all the time from pilots, yeah. air traffic control operators, RCMP officers. Uh, uh, he was talking about the meeting, right? The play the five notes. Oh, yeah. Well, who knows? Again, you know, we hear lots of stories like this. There are many people, even here in Canada, who say that they've seen entities, creatures of some sort. Right. Um, we don't really know. There's certainly nothing official that we can point to and say. But it's fascinating. The proof is there. We love to talk about it. Here's a shot. Henderson made a wild stab for fell. Here's another shot right by the shore. September 28, 1972, Paul Henderson scored the goal that <laughs> helped Canada survive. In the previous 26 days, a lot of things had happened. It all began September 2nd, 1972. Now, all of you who watch hockey today, who weren't around in 72, you're used to international players in the NHL and playing in Canada, the United States. Didn't happen before. Certainly not Russians, because it was part of the Soviet Union. They all played for the Red Army, the best ones, and then they were part of the team, the national team, and we never got to our best to play their best. It took forever to happen, but it started September 2nd, 1972, at the Montreal Forum. The puck dropped. The country watched, and 30 seconds later, the scoreboard read Canada 1, USSR nothing. 30 seconds. I sat back in my chair, and I said, it's going to be 120 to nothing by the time this thing's done. Phil Esposito had beaten Vladislav Trechek, and clearly, Canada's scouting report of inferior Soviet goaltending was correct. Canadians were grinning from coast to coast. Six minutes later, the national grin widened. Canada 2, USSR nothing. Who scored that second goal? My guest did. We didn't know what else he had in store for us when games 6, 7, and 8 happened in the Soviet Union in Moscow. We didn't do so well. We lost that first game, 7-3. to three. Won the second one in Toronto, 4-1. to one. Third game was a tie. Fourth game was lost. Uh, we lost in, in Vancouver. Phyllis Posita gave the, the speech that everyone will remember, and then it was off to Moscow, and we all thought, oh, my God, what's going to happen? And then we lost game five. And then Paul Henderson said, my turn. Scored the winning goal in game six, winning goal in game seven, and then you just heard Foster Hewitt's legendary call of game eight, scoring the goal. How are you, Paul? <laughs> it's... I'm doing quite well, actually. Doing very well. 
I, it's always, you know, whenever we talk, and, and you were very kind to me in a very difficult time in my life, and I'll never forget that. But here we are 50 years later, and those of us who watched every moment of that series, we have the opportunity to do that. We will never forget you rescuing this nation. May I, I never ask you this question. What were you thinking about before Game 8 started? What were you thinking about as a team? Well, I told Eleanor, my wife, my gorgeous wife, after the first game in Moscow, and actually I scored two goals on that first game in Moscow and got a concussion. <laughs> the doctors, thank goodness, I begged them to let me to play, and they did. And uh, and so I said to Eleanor, if we don't win the last three games, we're going to be known as the biggest losers in the history of Canadian hockey. And we all believed it and knew it. And, of course, won the first two games, won the the last two, or six and seven, by this time, we really were fairly confident. We were starting to get in shape. We were down. We knew who was going to play. And so we went into the last game with with a lot of confidence and felt good about it. But unfortunately, we were down 5-3 after the second period. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and uh, so, uh, anyway, it, it worked out well for me. Actually, on the last goal, I got to explain how this happened. We, our line, Bobby Clark, Ronnie Ellis, and I were on the ice, and we come off with a little over a minute and a half left in the game. And he sent out Cornway, Esposito, and uh, and uh, Peter Mahovlich. And then he come down. We just come off the ice, but he come down to us and he said, "If there's any time left, you guys are up." Okay. So anyway, the game goes on, and the Russians had told us that if the game ended up on a tie, they were going to claim victory because they had scored one more goal than uh, we had at this point. And so the game's going on. At the one-minute mark, I did something I never did before, never did in my life. Something within me, i got to get on the ice. We need to score a goal. And I started yelling at Peter Mahovlich, the left winger. Fortunately, Peter comes off. I jump over the boards, and uh, that's how it happened. That's just such an amazing story. And I don't think anybody breathed during great game eight. You may have been confident, but you made us scared because you were down to, as you said, after the second period. And then you step up. But you did it in game six, game seven, and game eight, which is phenomenal. Um, which one of those Which one of those goals, obviously the last one would probably be the most memorable, but which one was the one that um, maybe was the most difficult to score? Well, I think it, it, the, the best goal I ever scored was in my whole life, including the NHL. <clears throat> there was a little over two minutes left in the seventh game, and it was tied. And uh, uh, Serge Savard hit me at center ice with a pass, and I looked up, and there was two forwards and two defensemen back and went through the whole boards. And, uh, and one guy tripped me just as I was going to shoot it, and I fired it right under the crossbar, and... Uh, and that's the goal that I wish everybody was, you know, watching the last 50 years. But, you know, Henderson makes a wild stab forward and falls. I mean, every hockey player loves to hear that, don't they? <laughs> but anyway, uh. you know, you couldn't, no one would believe it. And, and I, I, like, I never in one moment ever thought that I would score goals like that. I mean, we had 12 Hall of Famers on that team, and so... But, you know, your opportunity, the old story goes, 
you never know an opportunity is going to knock. The secret is to take advantage of it. And brother, I took advantage of that one. You, you sure did. But you earned those goals. And I remember you telling me a number of years ago that you, don't, you, you weren't sure where one of the sticks was, right? Do you know where two of them are? Um, this was some years ago, but you didn't, weren't sure where the third one was. Well, I had six concussions, okay, Roy? And now <laughs> okay. I'm not sure. Right, well, I know the one I scored the goal with is yeah. in the Hall of Fame. I yeah. gave it to them. Yeah. The other six that I used, they could be all over the place. And there would be no way to know which was which anyway. Yeah. You know, uh, for 30 years, a lot of us, many of us in this country who admire what you did, respect what you did, know what it took or have an idea what it took to step up and accomplish what you accomplished. And you really took this nation off the emotional hook. Uh, you belong in the Hockey Hall of Fame. It just makes no sense, none whatsoever. The Tretiak, who you beat more than three times, more than six, seven, and eight, you beat him b- before that. You beat him in game five. You beat him in game two. Uh, he's in the Hall of Fame. You're not. You've been very gracious about it, Paul. But the Hockey Hall of Fame uh, selectors need to rectify this. There's nothing more famous than the victory of Team Canada 1972. And no goal and no performance is more famous than yours in 6, 7, and 8. So, Well, I mean, everybody's got an opinion on it. But what I tell people, and people come up to me to this day and say exactly what you're saying today. But I think... And here's my honest opinion. There's a lot of retired players that had better careers than I did over over their careers. And every bit as deserving as me. But it, it, they have a selection committee. And so whatever they do. But the thing about Roy is, if they put me in, I mean, I won't turn them down. But everybody, nobody will be kicked off anymore, including you. And you'll forget all about me. So no. I'm a lot better on the outside. <laughs> come up to me no. and say, you know, you should be and change the name of it. If they change it, change it, you know, the Hall of Fame. But you're more famous than a lot of them in there. So, but in reality, that's exactly what happened. So I meet people all the time, and they say exactly what you did. So I'm better on it. the outside. I've got every other thing in the world. I got the Order of Canada and the Order of Ontario. I mean, these are things I get after hockey, but. You know, and Hall of Fames, and that's other a lot of other Hall of Fames, Canadian, and so on. So anyway, I've, uh, I'm a very contented guy. I'm very fortunate. I can't think of anybody in the world more fortunate than I am. Information from Dalhousie University's AgriFood Analytical Lab, Analytical's Lab, following a national survey, shows very visceral responses to financial pressure Canadians are feeling related to inflation and interest rates. And food inflation is at its highest in 40 years. Sildan Charlebois, the director of the Dalhousie University Agri-Foods Analytics Lab, professor at Dalhousie University, at Food Professor on Twitter. And he's back with us on the program. Uh, Sildan, how are you? Very good, despite... uh Fiona, we're, we're doing good in the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, of course, you're in uh, Nova Scotia. And, um, how, how's your area? You're in, uh, you're in Halifax. Uh, how, how's Halifax? Well, it's, it's been tough to, to know exactly what's going on around us because we've been focused mainly on, uh, on ourselves and, and the kids. And, but um, I, think, I think winds were much Stronger than with Dorian in 2019, uh, we lost a tree. Uh, our our uh, back patio uh, 
flew off part of it anyways and and driving around the neighborhood we saw really many many trees uh go down uh some wires all over the place yeah it's uh there's a lot of cleaning up to do and but i'm sure that uh ns power and and our government authorities are are uh are up to the task cape breton's regional municipality sydney and uh and glace bay and and so on and uh, they've declared a seven-day state of emergency it's been uh, terrible and in uh Portabasque in Newfoundland, we've had houses with people in them, or at least one house, with a woman in it being swept into the ocean. That thing was just vicious, wasn't it, that storm? It was It was 1,500 kilometers wide. Yeah. I, if, wow. if we were hit hard, and I can't imagine our colleagues over in Cape Breton and in PEI as well, the Madeleines were hard hit, mm-hmm. so uh, so we were lucky. So I, I can't imagine what they're going through right now. All right, on to the food side of things. Do you have $218 breakfasts? <laughs> I, I was listening to you, Roy, and I, I, I'm trying to figure out a way. To, how do you spend $218 on breakfast? You've got to work really hard at it. That's I, dinner for four. Is there a nice menu that went with the $218? That's dinner for four in a nice restaurant. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, I hope they enjoyed it. I hope so too. <laughs> Not sure taxpayers did, but hopefully uh, yeah. some did enjoy it. So the, the MPs want information and uh, they want details, and good because we deserve that. But here we are. Yeah. You've done the analysis. Uh, inflation, food inflation, is is skyrocketing, and twenty four percent of people in this country are buying less food, not just cutting back but on, on what they buy, but buying less food because of cost. And 70% of that 24% women. Please talk to us about that. Yeah, so it's 24% uh, less volume, in food, not just dollars, but less volume. So, uh, so clearly a lot of Canadians are making dietary compromises along the way to deal with higher food prices. That's a number we didn't expect. And Roy, of that 24%, almost 70% are women. Can you imagine? So there's 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 a lot of desperation out there, and almost 8% of Canadians are actually literally skipping meals because of higher food prices. So on the one hand, three quarters of Canadians are are coping with with inflation the best they can. They're using points. They're using coupons. They're going to different locations to buy food. They're visiting dollar stores. They're doing everything they can. And I think the media has done a very good job informing the public in terms of the, of the options that people have. But there is, I would say, 25% of the population that are absolutely struggling with what's going on. And, and by the way, Roy, the food inflation rate has exceeded the general inflation rate in Canada for 13 months in a row now. So that's why everyone spooked the grocery store. Everything is going up, but it's exponential at the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that on your Twitter account, at Food Professor, that uh, 13 straight months, the rate of inflation for food has exceeded the general rate of inflation. But when you see things like, and you reported this, 8.2% of Canadians say they had to change their diet to save on food, and 7.1% skipped meals because of the cost of groceries. So you wonder how many kids are going without food because of the because of the cost of groceries, and that's that's really disturbing. That is that's I mean that's heartbreaking. 
It is, uh, yeah, as soon as, uh, I mean, I have children, and of course, as soon as you know children are impacted by what's going on, you, you have to you have to wonder what else can we do, and, and, and frankly, I, I, I do think there are things that, that industry can do. You see, over in Europe, uh, so we have a, a high free inflation rate, but we're number three within the G7 after Japan and France, Germany, 16.6. United States 13.5, so it's actually worse in other in other countries uh, of the G7. But what we've seen from grocers, and I think it's a novel idea, grocers are some grocers, not all, are voluntarily freezing the price for some food staples. Not all of them, just about a hundred. You give a break to consumers only for a while, for two three months. Um, Carrefour did it. Leclerc. Uh, done it as well, Vice uh, in Germany as well. There's over a dozen grocers over the last year or so that have done that temporarily just to help out, just to show that they have a heart, they want to help out consumers because they know that a lot of people are struggling. Um, I think, Roy, to be honest, I'm not talking about regulating prices. I'm just talking about uh, a nice PR move for grocers because, as you know, a lot of them are criticized <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, gouging, gouging consumers. And I, I think it's high time for them to think about a strategy to, yes, look better, but also, most importantly, to help Canadians. Yeah, I saw a story about a CEO of one of the major food chains in this country. He's speaking, I think, to uh, investors. It was a meeting of some kind. And uh, he was upset and, and challenging people who were saying, look, the grocery system, the grocery stores, the grocery chains are making, uh, you know, more, just are just profiting on the backs of people who are struggling. He got upset. I, I called, I got in touch with him, actually, and asked them for an interview. They declined. But um, fair enough. I mean, people do decline. But but it is what it is. So uh, do, do you have any sense that Canadian grocers will follow the lead of the Euro grocers and freeze the staples, uh, food uh, prices on staples? I, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I hope they will. Uh, and, and the person you're, I mean, I know that uh, the company actually was, uh, was quite vocal. And, and frankly, most of these accusations are baseless because we actually did look at the financial statements of Loblaws and Sobase and Metro, and there's no evidence of, of, of greenflation at all. The challenge, of course, is that 80% of Canadians actually do believe that there's greenflation going on in the grocery business. And so if, if I were the CEO of a chain, I'd be concerned about that. Yes, I would be too. You would want to kind of revisit the social contract you have with your, with your patrons and, and show some level of empathy because food inflation rate is a huge issue. It's been going on for a while. Compared to the 1980s, this scenario that we're going through right now is very, very different. Uh, food inflation is lingering, and it's going to linger for a very long time. Fiona's impact on uh, on Halifax. Um, yeah, that's... You know, it's hard to take your mind off it, eh, Sylvain? You just, I, you just see the images, and you know that people are struggling and suffering, and houses and homes have been swept into the ocean. It's, it's hard to think about anything else. Oh, absolutely! And uh, I've I've received a couple of calls uh, from media asking me how how the province is handling this. To be honest, I have no idea. We're just focused on survival here. <laughs> And uh, you know, hot coffee and, and eating, and so yeah. But I'm 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 pretty convinced that uh, 
I mean, we this is not our first hurricane. It won't be our last. And so I, I'm pretty confident that uh, that authorities are taking care of, of, of its citizens. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the focus has to be on Cape Breton because uh, yeah. I, I know that uh, – that uh, a lot of communities are devastated by by what has happened the last couple of days. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be speaking with them uh, later on. And uh, Atlantic Canadians have this tremendous sense of community, though. You, you pulled together. You've had so many challenges that you've had to face over the years: fishing industry problems, and you know, just the economy being difficult. So Atlantic Canadians have a great sense of community. Um, years ago, I was at a gas station uh, near Chester, and he filled up my car and was talking to the guy, and he said to me, uh, we're talking about five minutes, he said, so you're from Ontario? Yeah, whereabouts? Uh, sort of Hamilton, Toronto area. So tell me, he said, if you were back home, would you still be talking to me after filling up my car? <laughs> and I said, not a chance, pal. I would have been gone the second the pump clicked. But it's a different I mean, you know, lifestyle. Know, very nice, but I got to say, I mean, when we moved here six years ago, uh you're 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 a bit surprised when you go to say a coffee shop and and a total stranger will call you love. Yeah. Have a nice day, love. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's how people are Pardon? here. It's just an incredible place. So yeah. people will help each other. I mean, with in our in our own neighborhood, people some people actually have generators, others don't, and so we help each other out. We share you know, hot cocoa, hot coffee. We share uh, showers. I mean, that's the way it is here, right? Yeah. Yeah, Atlantic Canadians are wonderful, wonderful people and have a tremendous sense of community. Okay, back to the uh, the issue of food and inflation and what it's costing us across the country and what it's doing. Now, you tweeted as well about what's going to happen if our dollar continues to decline and if we go into recession, what happens with food prices? This is probably the number one concern that, that our team has right now. Uh, the dollar is falling at, at the worst time probably because we're slowly marching towards the winter season and we do import a lot of food during the winter and uh, and as you know Roy right now it's uh, with interest rates it's it's the race to the top uh, everyone's defending their currency uh, the Americans have an easier time to do that because they're 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 the money of reference I mean if, if people, Investors are looking for uh, refuge. That's where they'll go. They'll buy American dollars. So we're up against that. And most currencies are actually dropping, including ours. But ours is pretty critical for food security over the next little while. So if you remember a few years ago, the cauliflower head was at eight or nine dollars. All of a sudden, that's due to to a a, a significant depreciation of our dollar versus the greenback in just a matter of weeks. I'm just hoping that uh, that the dollar will hold on over the last, I'd say, probably three years. The currency has not been a big issue, but the dollar has actually lost 6 or 7% of its value the last six or seven months. And so that descent can continue, and that, that could actually spell uh, a problem for produce, for example. The center of the store, we could see actually a lot of products become more expensive in weeks to come. Yeah. So those numbers, 8.2% of Canadians having to change their diet to save money on food and 7.1% skipping meals because of the cost of groceries, those numbers would escalate significantly. Now, you're going to be speaking to a parliamentary committee in the next couple of days. We have about a minute here. What are you going to tell them? 
Well, I'm, I'm, first of all, we're, we'll be talking about uh, food resiliency and how do we actually build uh, a, a more more autonomous food system in Canada. Secondly, obviously, I think MPs will want to talk about inflation. Uh, we, we're about to start working on our forecast for 2023, so I'm probably going to give them a sense of what we're seeing right now on our radar. Uh, and finally, we'll, we'll talk about uh, supply chains. Uh, I think that's a big issue right now. It's still ongoing. We saw that a few years ago. Uh, it's still an issue right now. And so we'll talk more about supply chain resiliency with the group. We're looking forward to it. I've actually testified before that group, I think, three times already. So this will be my fourth visit. It's always a great conversation. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.